LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. This is the Unseen Leadership Podcast, where we explore the unseen stories that shaped leaders into who they are today. I was really thinking about a lot of pastors and leaders who are kind of on the brink right now of maybe throwing in the towel. And it's not because of some moral failure. It's not because of some disqualifying sin. It's just they got punched. They got slapped. They got betrayed. Uh, The churches, the organizations, the people that they led and loved, or the goals and dreams that they had just didn't come about. Well, welcome to the Unseen Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Vinoy. Here with my co-host, Mike Kelsey. And Mike, it has been a little while, man. We took the summer off, but we're back. It's been a while. I've been working on my golf career. (laughs) You Um, have, man. And if you have not seen the video, (laughs) just stop, hit pause, head on over to Instagram and just check out Mike's great golf swing. Don't judge me by that one, (laughs) one video. Uh, Man, it is good to be back. And I'm excited today, actually, uh, because I get to talk to... A good friend of mine, Mitchell Lee, he's the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. It's a thriving multi-ethnic fellowship in Fulton, Maryland, which is not far from where I am here in Montgomery County, Maryland. And uh, I'm excited. He's the author of a new book, Even If, which is all about trusting God when life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. Mitchell, it's good to have you on, man. Thanks, fellas. Good to be with you guys and excited to uh, talk about leadership with you. <laughs> well, I, like we were talking about, I, it sounds like you play some golf as well. So maybe we can just at another time, you can give all the golf tips to Mike to help him <laughs> along the way. <laughs> Starting with how to hit the ball yeah. <laughs> and what shoes to wear. <laughs> yeah. Dude, I'll tell you, when I was a when I was a youth pastor in Chicago, I was a chaplain for FCA golf camps for about seven years in a row. Mm. And what that entailed was you go down for sometimes a week, maybe two weeks of camp, you preach in the morning, you do chapels in the evening, you go to clinics and play golf with these golfers. You're hanging out with college golfers, pros, and they paid me to do it. It was, I told, I remember when I told my mom, first time I got that gig, it was just quiet. And then she goes, the Lord must love you. (laughs) The Lord must love you. So that's where my love for the game came. Sure. Oh man, that's awesome. <laughs> well, we're going to get into some questions here and explore the unseen stories of your story, Mitchell. But before we do, like, like Mike mentioned, I uh, just came out with a new book called Even If. Would love to hear just a little bit about your heart of, behind writing it and what your hopes are for the book for those who are reading it. Yeah, Chandler, thanks. A lot of my story actually is in the book, Even If. It's a message that God's been writing in my heart for probably the last 19 years. And it's related to right when I graduated seminary, and you've got the whole world in front of you and everyone's telling you how God's going to do great things for you. And you've got so many dreams. And it felt like all of those dreams came crashing down even before I took my first pastorate. And I was left in such a place of confusion. I, I, I didn't understand. I thought, wait, did God pass me by? Was I disqualified? Did something happen? Why is it that it seems that all of my other classmates and roommates are going on to churches and going overseas, but here I feel completely abandoned. I was, I had just been fired from my home church of 20 years. It was a really, really wilderness period for me. And that's when the Lord really met me with this Daniel three message of even if, and it's where Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, people know the story They're before King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar wants them to bow down 
And if he, and if they won't, then he, they're going to be thrown in the fire. And their response in Daniel three seventeen to 18 has shaped the course of my life, both in leadership as well as just my devotion to God. We don't have to answer you, King. Our God can save us. So they have this confidence in his goodness. Our God can save us. And then the real turn, even if he doesn't, yeah. we're not going to worship anyone else. And the more I've studied that passage, I'm just blown away by how is it that they're able to say this with such confidence? Because if you think of just the context of their story, God had let Jerusalem be taken by Babylon. It seemed like he had handed the city over and they're able to say like, no, our God can save us Mm -hmm. even though he didn't. And even though he didn't, and even if he doesn't again, we're not going to worship anyone else. That sort of Mm -hmm. resolve, that sort of resolve in, in worshiping the Lord. And that's why I wrote the book for folks, people, who we pastor, who we lead, who life has just inexplicably punched them or they feel stuck or they're disappointed. But even also as part of my audience, so to speak, uh, I was really thinking about a lot of pastors and leaders mm. who are kind of on the brink right now of maybe throwing in the towel. Yeah. And it's not because of some moral failure. It's not because of some disqualifying sin. It's just they got punched, they got slapped, they got betrayed, uh, the churches, the organizations, the people that they led and loved, or the goals and dreams that they had just didn't come about. And That's a lot of leaders. Oh gosh. And especially right now, right? I mean, yeah. I was uh was I was listening to talking to someone and they said this is this coming year is the year of the great resignation. Wow. Where we're going to see just a, a huge turnover of leaders who say, you know, I I think I've had my, my share of enough is enough. And I think I'm done. Mm. And I want to encourage him, put your confidence in the Lord and have a resolve, whether that means you stick with it or you go. Uh, I think that's why this message is really timely right now. Hmm. I, I think you're right. Mitch. I mean, it's, I, I know this resonates just with me. I'm sure with a lot of leaders and pastors, just the season that we've been in through pandemic and all the cultural upheaval, mm-hmm that we've been in and you you start your book with a story. I don't, I don't wanna ruin it because I want people to actually go read the book. I've known you for a long time. I did not know that story. Um, and it's a crazy story about how that first pastoral job ended. But pretty quickly after sharing that, you, you used a phrase, um, I think you pulled from David Brooks where he describes people who persevered through the valley as uh, second mountain people. Yeah. And I think that is huge. Can you just kind of explain that? Yeah. So David Brooks has a book called The Second Mountain. He's become one of my, like, uh, surprisingly a favorite author and just the way he's able to comment on culture. But he talks about second mountain people as people who live for something bigger than themselves. That's the Mm -hmm. second mountain. And actually, so the first mountain is the first mountain we think we're supposed to climb. Success, fame, achievement. And that could be monetary, it could be uh, popularity, whatever your goal, whatever your expectation, desire, dream might be. That's your first mountain. And he says, uh, most people get knocked off that first mountain and they get knocked into the valley. And the valley has the potential to either transform them or be their destiny for the remainder of their days. And if we will allow ourselves to be transformed, now he's not talking it through a faith lens, even though he has since become a believer, He says, if the valley could transform us, then we can become second mountain people. We can end up climbing something else. Uh, But he also talks about people who climbed the top of the first mountain, the successful ones who realize this was not as fulfilling as I thought it would be. Mm. And they get to the top of that first mountain. They they think, oh my gosh, I've been climbing the wrong mountain. That's the mountain I need to, to climb. 
and it's it's really a continuing narrative or thought that he has had for a while about that character. And you know, I love in that book. Actually, he gives this definition. Uh, he says, "What is that difference between happiness and joy? Uh, happiness is the fulfillment of yourself, and joy is the transcendence of yourself." Mm. And and I just really love that the idea that you can experience joy when you're now living for something that's bigger mm. than you. And I'm really, I'm glad that you picked up on that because we think for Christian leaders, oh yes, we're motivated by the gospel, the kingdom of God. Of course we live for things bigger than ourselves. But if you take in a daily inventory, I don't know if you're like me, a daily mm. inventory, my empire is pretty strong and it, it, it's, it, it fashions and forms my schedule on a daily basis. And I need those moments to be kind of smacked a little bit and, uh, you know, made sober to the reality of the kingdom of God being bigger than me. So yeah, mm. second mountain people. <laughs> no, that's very helpful. And we'll, we'll come back. I'm, I'm sure we will to some more questions about the book, just cause there's so much in there and thank you for writing it, Mitchell. And then just even, you know, sharing about your own story. And as we hop into kind of the unseen side of your story, you know, can you walk us through a little bit of an overview of the different leadership roles you've been in over the years? And it sounds like there's definitely one of those moments that you, you wrote in the, the first story of the book uh, that really shaped your leadership. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, as a college student, I was involved in leading worship at my church and then ended up really running the whole music uh, department uh, for our English speaking ministry. Uh, I went to a graduated college, was really interested in exploring ministry. And I spent some time in South Korea. I was running a student ministry there for international students living in South Korea. And I really thought student ministry was going to be my, my track. I was involved in some national consulting, coaching things, writing some curriculum for Compassion International to mobilize youth. So I was really interested in youth, youth, youth. Uh, when I went to seminary, I was still being a youth pastor. When I was fired from my churches, I managed my mom's deli for about a year and a half. Mm. And that you want to talk about hard leadership situations. Mm. That that was a crash course in leadership. Uh, and then continued in student ministry in Chicago, transitioned to teaching pastor, some more kind of young adult-ish ministries. And then five years ago, I became the lead pastor of Grace Community Church. Mm. So throughout all that time, I mean, there's, there's different turning points there. Is there like one specific pivotal moment that you look back on that you'd say, Hey man, that changed my life and my leadership trajectory. Yeah, definitely. When I got fired, not just from my home church, but then in a very place of un emotional unhealth, hmm. I foolishly signed on with a, another church plant to help them out. And then I got fired from there in a year, a year later. And it was the year and a half of managing my mom's deli where I felt again, like the Lord had passed me over. That wilderness was so important Chandler for my leadership. I've heard it say just kind of almost like a cliche, like never trust a leader without a limp. Mm. Right. And that, that place of brokenness, the place of you have to come back and really, is this really my calling or is this something that I'm just choosing to do because I'm getting the most affirmation there. And what I would learn during that wilderness period was that charismatic gifted people are a dime a dozen. They come and go, they make a splash in the water and then they move on. And it's, it's people with character, people with faithfulness and sincerity that stay and that the Lord uses. And I, I just really, 
I just had to be broken of my arrogance and my pride. I, I was getting all this theology and doctrine put on top of all of this vision casting ability and what it means to be a leader up front. I was turning into a monster. And uh, the Lord graciously, with his severe mercy, changed the trajectory mm. and took me to a place of where humility and character are far more important than what you can do on a stage or what you can motivate people to do. Hmm. Mitchell, you had, I mean, you've already mentioned a, a couple of those painful experiences that where God used those to almost force you to self-reflect, to become more self-aware, to kind of probe a little bit. What is God doing right now? Is there a way to get to that point without being forced there? You know what I mean? Like for, so for leaders who right now, maybe there's not some big blow up or major disappointing situation that brings them to that point. Any advice you give a, a younger leader or any leader really for how to cultivate that kind of self-awareness without being forced to get to that point? Yeah, man, that's a great question, Mike. I've wrestled with that for a while, especially because I have a lot of younger staff. And I want to create for them a, a culture where they're thriving and they're growing. But in the back of my mind, I mean, just look at the biblical testimony. Like what leader do you see who doesn't go through the wilderness? Mm. Like God meets us in the wilderness. It's almost a part of our spiritual formation. Uh, uh, St. John of the cross talks about the dark night of the soul mm. that every person has to look in and face this and, and, and be broken in this sense. And it's not that you wait for those things though. There are things that you can cultivate the stillness and rhythms of stillness and silence, the counterintuitive things are that when things are craziest is when you should withdraw and be alone with the Lord. These sorts of rhythms, I think, instead of just leaning in more, filling our schedule more with more things and just going after it, you look at Jesus when the, you know, the height of his popularity, okay, come away with me to a desolate place. Mm. And it's, whoa, I think those kind of cultivations allow you to be more sensitive and to run to God when you're in the fire, when you're in the valley, quicker. Mm. It doesn't do the work that makes you avoid that, that you can avoid the valley or the fire. But I think when we are cultivating that intimacy with the Lord before the valley comes, it makes us able to endure the valley in that kind of formative, transformative way. Mm. You know, M Mitchell, as you're sharing your story, I've, I've been in the process of reading Grant's Ulysses S. Grant's biography for the past, like, it's basically the summer. It's been a grind, but it's a great book. And like there was a thousand page one. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't realize, I didn't know what I was signing up for, man, but it's so, it's really good. Um, but part of his story is, and I didn't realize this before reading the book is he was, he was actually, you know, he wasn't, you know, leading much of the army before, but he got fired right before, you know, the civil war kind of started breaking out and he was went back to his home and he was working in his dad's like hardware shop. And he was just working there and hearing your story. It's like kind of the same way where you were, you were waiting in the season. And then for him, you know, opportunity knocked on the door of unfortunately a war for the civil war. And he just started getting promoted. And it was like, 
in the opportunity, what looked like it was like, man, his career's over. An opportunity arose that he was able to then be promoted. And we know where he ended up leading the, yeah. the army and then becoming the president. But people would pass him and go, oh, there's there's Grant. He's just a no good, nobody. And he was kind of just dejected during Ooh. that season. Mm-hmm. And I hear you, you said, you said, man, I spent a year and a half. And those were some formative leadership moments. And you, a lot of kind of wrestling with yourself. And man, I just know that there's somebody, and I, even throughout this, this past year and a half of COVID, I think there's some people who just kind of feel that way. Maybe, maybe they lost their job due to the pandemic, or maybe they're going through a season where kind of like you said, man, I, I come out of seminary or I came out of college. I did this and I was, everything was looking up. And then it just, maybe it was that first mountain and it just got, we just got destroyed and we're yep. sitting in the Valley. And I know, I know Mike kind of just asked this, but if you were, if you were sitting with someone, even if you were sitting with yourself, what would you tell yourself or somebody from your own experience who's sitting in that moment of like, man, I feel like I just missed my opportunity yeah. and I don't know what's next. What would you share with them? Yeah. I think the first thing I would tell myself or, or speak to someone about would be the regrets that you feel. I'd say, name them, name the regrets, name your disappointments. And then over each of those regrets and disappointments, I would speak the gospel truth that there are no wasted years in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. There are, there are no wasted years. There are no wasted efforts in the kingdom of God. Uh, a good buddy of mine, actually, we were having lunch just a few days ago. Uh, Mike, Matt, Matt and I were having lunch and we were talking about why is it that we don't really talk about a theology of extinction that even in the kingdom of God and his economy, things die. Mm that, and you look at church history, that, that it's a, that things die and the Lord has a, a willingness in it. But even in those deaths, there are no wasted years. Mm-hmm. I would also encourage someone to do not underestimate the formative power of obscurity, obscurity, that it's out of, it's in obscurity is where God forms the character that can uh, last and sustain whatever work God would have for you. And I am, I think about my own journey and gosh, I wouldn't wish my, that year and a half then, nor would I wish the year and a half of COVID on anyone. Yeah. But you can see that some people didn't come out more formed and deeper with Jesus. They just came out more itching to get back into the hustle and bustle. Mm. And, but then you, every now and then you meet a leader who this past year and a half was a reset a, a formative time when things had to, to, to slow and shut down so that God could get our attention as leaders. And I, I would just encourage someone who's kind of just, if you're reeling, even for myself, I say, God's not done with you. God is not done with you. And even though he may not be doing and he may not do what you know, he could, it does not mean that this is therefore some sort of punishment or wrath because we know what the gospel speaks God does not punish us. God punished his son on our behalf. That includes for leaders too, right? God punished his son on our behalf. So we know that this is not the wrathful punishment of God. Could there be a discipline in it? Absolutely. But we also know that God is motivated by his compassion and his mercy towards us. And those are the words I would encourage myself with in that wilderness period. Hold on, hang in, you know, um, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish. That was the mm-hmm. verse that really sustained me. 
mm-hmm. during the time when I felt like God was so distant. Mm. Yeah, you talked about it in the book that Richard Sibbs sermon, mm-hmm. um, which is which is clutch. What was early on, Mitchell? Uh, what was one of your biggest mistakes as a leader getting getting started? Oh man, I thought I knew how to. I, I thought I knew. I, I thought I had. I knew all the answers. <laughs> Right. I was just waiting like, hey, I can't wait till I have the keys. And once Mm. I have the keys, I'm going to throw this thing into fifth gear and we're going to go, man. Mm. And it was, uh, you know, Gene Edwards has this little book called A Tale of Three Kings. Oh, yeah. Right. And it's a parable kind of and Absalom. I had the Absalom spirit, Mike. Mm. Oh, if I were the leader, I would. And I had such a, 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 self-confidence slash arrogance yeah. about, Oh, once I get the keys, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to drive it. And it was just brash. It was foolish. It's like my kids. They, they think all they need is the keys. <laughs> it's like you have no idea. <laughs> it's like, you know, being a Washington football team fan. It's like, man, if I was in charge, this is what I would do. I would just go, I would just go and get it done and fix this whole thing up. And then and you get into that seat and you get the keys and you're like, wait a second, if I drive this in the fifth gear, what if I run over people and what if people get whiplash and, Oh man, there's a lot more things that I can see from this vantage point that I didn't see from the other one. Hmm. And it, it makes you have some humble pause. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Hey, before we get to the next question, let's take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Let's face it. You didn't become a pastor to be an accountant and you didn't attend seminary to learn about software. Still, managing money is crucial for any thriving organization, which means if you're doing anything wrong, then you're risking the financial health and vitality of your church. Thankfully, our friends at Belay know this well. Belay, an innovative staffing solution with over 10 years of experience serving churches, has successfully matched thousands of organizations with experienced U.S.-based virtual bookkeepers, virtual assistants, and social media strategists. And they are offering all of our podcast listeners a free download of their resource, Five Ways a Church Bookkeeper Can Transform Your Day, which shares the five most positive changes that will come out of hiring a bookkeeper for your church. So just text LIFEWAY to 55123. That's L-I-F-E-W-A-Y to 55123 for your free download. And if you do so, you will be one step closer to reclaiming precious time every week to do what only you can do. Now, back to the podcast. Well, Mitchell, what book do you wish someone gave you when you were just starting to lead other than Even If? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's actually a really easy one. Uh, In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nouwen. Hmm. It's actually a set of lectures that they turned into a book, actually a set of lectures that he gave in Washington, D.C. in the 80s. I wish somebody had given me that because it would have, number one, it would have thoroughly confused me. I would have been like, what is this guy talking about? It's a different kind of leadership that I just, I'm like, this is, you don't hear about this in any of the leadership books. And even if it's only for the concept of the irrelevance, that the best thing that a leader can bring is his or her irrelevance to the situation and that irrelevance comes from being rooted in the gospel story. Mm. I I bet people even listening to that right now, they're like, what, what does that 
mean. And go pick up the book and read it. It's not a thick one, but this idea of irrelevance that the leader's great, the Christian leader's great strength is that of irrelevance. Whoa, man, that just flies counterculturally in the face of everything we're taught. Mm. Well, Mm. all right. So kind of in light of that, and you don't, this is not something knowing you personally, you don't make a big deal about this, but you are one of few Asian American Christian leaders that leads a predominantly white megachurch. And I remember being at your installation and Mm -hmm. it was a big deal. There was a lot of people there in your church family there at Grace and others from the community that were just proud of you. You're leading an increasingly multi-ethnic church and have been doing so over the last five years, including the last year and a half, which has been incredibly challenging. What would you say is one of the biggest challenges in leading a multi-ethnic church? Man, um, that's a good question. I would say the biggest challenge is, is to show up. And what I mean by that is to lead out of your convictions in this, in this day and age, especially with so many opposing viewpoints and then in a multi-ethnic environment where you've got people everywhere thinking everything about whatever you're going to say. I mean, they're parsing every word. They are transcribing videos. I mean, there's just, people are just wanting to attack, criticize, comment on, push back, amplify. It could be a number of things. It's so easy to try to think about how to lead so that each person is placated or each person feels led or cared for. There's no win in that situation. And the hardest thing has been to hold on to my own convictions, what the Lord has laid in my heart and to speak that and to lead out of it with courage and humility, knowing that you're going to get shot at, knowing that you're going to get punched and you're saying, well, even if, right. Even if that happens, I'm going to speak the things that you've laid in my heart, Lord. And then the actual added pressure is you better be before the Lord, really making sure that things you're speaking are really out of his heart that he's put Mm -hmm. on you. So there's that sort of twofold. Okay. Is what I'm saying truly from the Lord, what he's laid on my heart. And then number two, will I have the convictions to hold on to it and not just remove myself, but to Edwin Friedman calls it being differentiated to step into somebody else's world while being true to your own convictions and still able to care for them without losing yourself. Man, that has been, that has been a hard, hard piece of it. Do you have any regrets in leadership over the last year and a half? Yeah, for sure. I I think I used the, the fact that we were all scattered. I think I used that as an excuse to not lean in to some of the harder conversations for the whole body. And what it did is it led to a lot of confusion because they would hear it in different snippets and things like that. And I I just kept saying, well, we're not together. We have to wait till we're together. But a lot of that damage had been done. And I think I would have tried to over-communicate, over-communicate, over-communicate intentions and motives and expectations uh, that I just assumed people had or understood. And, you know, Mike, you and I have talked about this in the past, but it's so funny in this day and age, when it comes to COVID, when it comes to race, people get amnesia. They forget who you are. 
yeah. as their leader. You could have 10, 15, 20. I've talked to one pastor, 25 years of faithful gospel ministry in one church. And the one message that he gave on race, everyone was calling him that he was forsaking the gospel. After 25 years of preaching in the same church, it's mm. people get amnesia. And so you have to continue to communicate. You got to continue to do that. And I, I regret not doing more of that. Hmm. Well, when you go back to your younger self and you, you thought about leadership, of course you said, Hey, well, it's time to take it to the fifth gear. I have all the answers. What was one of your biggest misconceptions about leadership? Oh, that, uh, once, you know, it, I, I thought from, from my unique one that, um, as a leader, I just thought that the biggest people that you would have to convince would be the congregation because there's more of them. And I realized, oh my gosh, actually your staff are your, could be your greatest hem and horrors, right? Like, 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 you know, facetious say, I think about Moses. I was like, he should have totally taken up the Lord's offer to just start all over with him. Right. Um, like, you know, he's like, oh man. And I, that, when I'm thinking about that, I thought, oh, it's just the, it's just the people who are obstinate and hard hearted and stiff necked. But actually Moses got his pushback from Miriam and Aaron. And so I think I thought, oh, as a leader, your closest staff, like they don't need convincing. They're with you. Let's go. And actually they're the people that you've got to communicate and cast vision to and lead probably the most because they're responsible for having, helping to amplify and champion uh, the vision of what God is doing. So that was definitely a misconception I had. I just, I just thought, mm. hey, once you, once you're there, it's, it's done. Um, there's probably a lot more th- to it than that. But <laughs> no, that's, that, <laughs> that's really good. So young leaders stepping in for the first time, like you said, they may be like, we just got to convince these people uh, in the congregation, not staff, or maybe it's just people who they're working with. What are some practical ways that you're like, Hey, here's how to pour into the closest people around you to get them on board rather than just, you know, the, the majority of people. And everything hangs on relational connectedness. Everything hands on. You could have the tightest, clearest, most portable and exhaustive mission statement, vision proper. I mean, all of that stuff, like it's great. You could have the tightest agreed upon values and, and create a wonderful culture. But if you do not have the relational connectedness with those closest to you, meaning the relationships of trust, the relationships of knowing their stories, them knowing your story, you, you got to double down, triple down on that. It might seem like, wow, this is. Uh, really like what about the mission what about all the people you have to minister to yes there is that reality it's almost like you're you're, you're building the plane in midair really is what you're doing but i i can't i can't say that enough you have to double down relationally with the people who you're working closest with you just got to it's all relational connectedness it's count that's mm-hmm. counterintuitive in some ways though mitchell because typically that leader who's in the first seat is a go-getter and has already been persuaded that, Hey, this is the direction we need to go in. And it feels so slow to, to build that time in and to, and to invest the energy necessary to have those kind of relationships. So you got some leaders who would say, we don't need to be BFFs. You know what I mean? Here, we just, we just need to run toward 
the vision that God has given us, like how, how do you counteract that temptation to feel like that is wasted time and effort? Yeah. And, and let me make one clarification on that too, because I wouldn't want to make the assumption that relational connectedness equals best friends. Mm. Right. Um, fr- frankly, I bet there's uh, some people listening right now, guys who, who they they're frustrated with their teams because they want to be closer relationally and they want to be friends. They want to be the people that they go out to dinner with and vacation with and all that sort of stuff. I wouldn't really check that expectation before the Lord, because I don't think that, that necessarily means relational connectedness, especially if there's age disparities on your team or seasons of life disparities on your team, which is, which there are for me. Uh, my, my, my uh, closest team, they are not my best friends. They're not even people that I would, this is going to sound weird, choose to necessarily hang out with. And that is okay. But I work so hard at our relational connectedness to know them and that they would know me. So some of that might be like out of office things and that kind of stuff. And I'm still trying to figure that part out of it. But it was, it felt like a great freedom when I realized, nope, they don't have to be my best friends. Uh, But I do have a a, a responsibility and accountability to stay relationally connected to them deeply. Now with the idea of pace, that really is, depends on, do you want to build something that will outlast you? Mm. Because if you want to build something that's going to outlet, if you want to just kind of hit your to-do list, your five-year strategic plan, your 10-year strategic plan, and you build something, you will inevitably, you're going to shape some culture, but you're going to get a lot of like really amazing things done, but it probably won't outlast you. Now, if you list, if you're there 15, 20 years, 25 years of that, maybe, but most people aren't in one place for that long. You want to build something that will outlast you. You've got to build culture. And the way you build culture is you go slow. Mm-hmm. You get, you have to go slow. You can still have your objectives. You can still have your five-year plans and here's what we want to do, but you got to go slow. And that means in terms of communication, that means in terms of team building, you've just got to go slower. And you know, a, a book I read over the summer by Pete Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. He talks about one of the things we have to come back to embracing is that the success of ministry is not just up and to the right. Mm-hmm. It's not just grow it faster and bigger. Uh, the, the, the Mars Hill podcast that's making the rounds lately right, is a testament to that. We have to be willing to go slow so we can build it well. And that's what I would say to the person who wants to go, like, you want to go fast. What's, what is the, why, what's the motivation? Mm-hmm. What's the motivation? I like to say it around us, like you have to have an urgency for the long haul. So we want to have an urgency with our tasks, but we want to have the long haul view that any substantial kingdom work, it takes time. Mm. It takes time. And that's what I would say is, yeah, you do have to go slow, much slower. And I, I mean, man, that's, that has been a hard lesson for me to learn, especially in the last like two, three years. Cause I, mm. I, I realized, and I didn't realize it. I just thought everybody worked at the same pace that I did. And there was actually a funny elders meeting. Uh, I think it was about six months ago where one of the elders is like, Mitchell, we don't all go at your pace. I, we, we just need to make sure you recognize that. I said, what are you guys talking about? Like my pace is, I feel like my pace is normal. I feel like you guys are moving slow. And another elder tips in, he goes, Hey, like, can we just point out that you wrote a book during COVID? 
like, oh, okay, shoot. All right. Let, let me add, right. let me Let's add a, let me add another one. Nobody moves at your pace. Uh, on average, Mitchell, you hate when I ask this question. <clears throat> How long does it take you to prepare a sermon? <laughs> you would go there, man. You would go there. Just just say it for the people. Uh, um, somewhere like four to six hours, probably. Yep. Yeah. I know we gotta I know we gotta hit these quick uh hitter hitter questions, but I really encourage leaders to to read your book, Mitchell, uh even if it is so perfect. I know you've been working on it really for a lifetime. I feel like this is content the Lord has just been cultivating in you. And it just so happened that the Lord decided to kind of bear the fruit of this book mm. right now in a time where I feel like so many people in general and leaders in particular are, well, you said it, are trying to trust God when life disappoints, overwhelms, or just doesn't make sense. I'll tell you one of my, one of the most impactful things in the book for me. Um, and if you guys who are listening, uh, read the book, at the back of the book, Mitchell wrote out some even if prayers just to guide your prayer life in particular situations. And Mitchell, this was one of the most impactful things for me. It's an even if prayer before you take a risk. Mm -hmm. And I know there's so many leaders that are wrestling with God. I feel like you've shown me this. I feel like you've given me vision for this next step or to, to take this initiative forward. And I'll just read the beginning and end of the prayer. It said, uh, God of glory, I can't deny the passion you've put in my heart. Like a fire shut up in my bones, the need to step out stirs me, yet I am fearful. The questions of what if rule my heart, the need for success only adds to the pressure. And then at the end of the prayer, and it's a long prayer, but at the end, it says, even if this risk does not pan out, even if it brings pain and discomfort, you are worthy of my best efforts. So I leave the results of my obedience to you for I know that come success or failure, I am yours and nothing can change that. And that was just so huge, man, for me as a leader, especially in this season of life. So Mitchell, thanks so much for, for writing this book, man. And I hope a lot of people will read it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Thanks. Well, let's move to the quick hitter questions here. And these are going to be just short one minute answers. And we'll get started with this one. What is your ideal daily routine? So what time do you wake up, get into the office? What time's a normal tea time for you? All that good stuff. <laughs> is this a way? Are we talking work day, Chandler, or like a play day? Because I uh, We're talking work scenario. day, man. I'm just okay. messing with you. Um, I'd be up at around 6.30 and have a good half hour of unhurried stillness and quietness with the Lord. It, it makes it, it, it's become absolutely crucial for me. And I'm talking more than quiet time. I mean, talking a real stillness and silence that's really unhurried. And so that will happen. I usually get in the office around eight forty-five to nine ish. And depending on the day of the week. So Monday and Tuesday, I usually call, call those sort of my uh, defense days. Those are the days where we're responding back to stuff that happened over the weekend or, you know, checking in with staff, uh, things like that. Uh, Wednesday is study day and uh, just a sermon stuff, reading, and then usually in the afternoon, I'll take maybe some sort of a, a counseling related meeting. And then 
Thursday, Friday is usually the, the offense day where I want to go after some things and think a little bit more long-term. Hmm. Uh, once a month, I have a day of solitude where I'm just unreachable. Uh, and there's usually not an agenda. I'm just trying to go and waste some time with the Lord. So that's uh, once a month there. Yeah, that's my ideal day. Mm-hmm. That, oh, oh that. I should say also in the evening, what's really uh, the last two months is um, right around nine o'clock or nine 30. I'll usually go to bed around 10 30, but I usually take 10 or 15 minutes and do uh, the exam and, and just review the day, the last 24 hours. Where did I sense the Lord with me? Where did I ignore the Lord's presence? And what's one feeling within that, that I want to d- dig deeper into. It has been so rich for me to do that each evening and then start the morning again, the Lord. So that's been huge. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite personality test? Oh gosh, um, have, you, have you guys done the Berkman one? The Berkman, it's uh, the, the I've not. Somebody else recommended it a while back. It's really great for teams. That's why I like it. But it it kind of talks about what your needs are in terms of your work environment, uh, and when your needs are not being met, what stress behavior do you go to, and then what is your usual behavior when your needs are being met it's been really eye opening to see some of that and then to see it with my team and then they compare it. So that's a pretty cool assessment. Hmm. What is an unusual habit that helps you in your leadership? I, um, I, I get away, <laughs> I get away. Not so weird. Um, I'm be, I'm seeing it more and more. I, I don't make good decisions in the heat of it. And so I will try to do the counterintuitive and counterintuitive and withdraw, even if it's for a half hour, 45 minutes, uh, even if it's for 15 minutes, 10 minutes to, to walk and then intentionally creating margin. I don't like my schedule full. Uh, and I'm okay with feeling just a little bit le- le- less productive than I think I should have been. I'm actually okay with that. Cause over the long haul, it creates a good rhythm for me to bring my best when a tough thing comes. What's your favorite app on your phone? Favorite app on my phone, other than the ESPN app, uh, <laughs> man, the ES, dude, that humbled me. You know, you know, Apple gives you that screen time. And oh how gosh. Much time you spend on your app. <laughs> why would you, why would you torture yourself? Oh gosh. ESPN. Terrible. Uh, and that is probably the app that I use the most. I use the Chelsea, the Chelsea FC app. I'm a big <laughs> English Premier League fan. That's uh, great. Yeah, man. Those are that. And then the funnest one for the family is the Starwalk app where you can just use it up, put it up in the sky at night and yeah. look at all this, the constellations. So. Hmm. <laughs> what has been the best book you've read in the past six months? Uh, Edwin Friedman, Failure of Nerve, Pete Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Uh, Henry now in life of the beloved. Mm. See those three. Mm-hmm. What one sentence advice would you give somebody going into a leadership position for the first time? Go slow. <laughs> Go slow. That's what I would say. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super helpful and concise and convicting for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Mitchell, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today and sharing about your leadership journey. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. And if it has, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review to help other young leaders like yourself find the podcast. And we'll see you next week.